Okay, so it's Wednesday afternoon, so we're all having scotch. I'm so glad we went back to taping in the afternoon. <laughs> You're going to drink something we got in the mail and make sure it's not poison, Pam. <laughs> I, I would just like to say before I drink this, I am not a war criminal. <laughs> and I am now going to drink this Four Roses. All right, let's give it a shot. I also, that was a lot of drama. And look, I'm not dead. She's not dead. Not yet. <laughs> and also not a war criminal. Um, and it, it's it's a bit macabre to laugh about this Croat war criminal who uh, who drank poison so dramatically in court. But wow. At his sentencing, was it? At the confirmation of his sentencing yeah. on appeal. Uh, but what a way to go. Uh, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was, you know, it was dramatic and... Uh, and he didn't tweet about it, you know. He's like he just no, he did not. He just did it. Um, and well, if you gotta go, do it in style. Well, this is very lovely. Four roses, whoever sent it to us, thank you very much. And uh, if I expire, my friends will track you down and kill you. <laughs> and thank you for the Hello, welcome to Rational Security, the Power of Delusional Thinking Edition. I'm Shane Harris, very much a live reporter. No poison in my glass. Oh, ben, you're none, still with us? None that you know of. None that you know of. It'll act on you slowly, <laughs> much like a news cycle. Actually, the news cycle feels very slow today. Really? Yeah, it, it does. I don't know. I feel like this weird eye of the hurricane kind so of moment. I right have now. two suggestions about how the news cycle should now handle new allegations of sexual assault and harassment yeah that part of the, the news cycle is not slow so so, so but I just, my relative news so cycle. i think we should have instead of like my phone um sending me breaking news alerts over and over and over again over the course of the day about famous men who have been fired yeah. um you know matt lauer garrison keeler the, like can we have like one body count at the end of the day? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. A like a daily digest. Like, digest. Right. Just like your up. really active listservs that right. you subscribe to, just the asshole men daily yeah, digest. Right. These, you know, today and fired media celebrity. Exactly. Yeah. Just one a day. <laughs> like, oh him. Oh, I didn't know he was on still. Yeah. <laughs> also He's Garrison so Keeler. Yeah. I just I, it's all it's all baffling to me. I don't know. Yeah. None of it is baffling. Well, none of it's baffling, but it's just like I, it's, I forgot that Garrison Keillor was even a thing. That's all I'm saying. You forgot he was still alive. Is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I'm not up at five o'clock to hear Writer's Almanac, and we used to call what was it Lake Wobegon or whatever, what, pr- Prairie, Prairie Home Companion. Companion. Yeah, we always whenever it would come on, we'd always call it Novocaine Theater. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we like switch, turn it off. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest, so it's a little bit. There's of a, a certain experience. Lutheran charm to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I am here in the jungle studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis and Ben Wittis. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. But no um, Susan Hennessy. Susan Hennessy is um, off testifying before the Congress. As, where, as was Tamara yeah, earlier Tamara today. Tamara this morning. So Congress had to have one, like, fourth of our podcast today. I actually got half of it, but yeah, the, we're all here. Today is the day, I think the first <clears throat> day in the history of the country where all the women of national of, of rational security have testified before Congress. That's right. All, all two of us. <laughs> this also means that I am the only member of Rational Security who has never testified before Congress. 
you well, know, get if, on it, Shane. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not there as an official government witness, it can actually be pretty fun. <laughs> I think I'm going to wait on putting that one on my resume for as long as possible. Um, this week on the podcast, Mike Flynn signals that he may be cooperating with Robert Mueller's investigation. It's the Flynn investigation. <laughs> the Flynn investigation, person of interest. Uh, we didn't get to talk about that last week, so we're going to talk about it this week. President Trump's th- Trump thinks the investigation may be nearing its end, um, hence our power of delusional thinking title. Uh, and the U.S. plans to stay in Syria long after ISIS is defeated. Um, let's talk about Flynn. So this news broke last Thursday that his lawyers had ceased communications slash a, a, a sharing of information, a def- joint defense agreement is the, per- is the technical term for it, right? With the president's lawyers, which is a strong indication that uh, he may be looking to cooperate with Bob Mueller. Uh, ABC News then reported on Monday that Flynn and his lawyers, I guess, were seen going to Bob Mueller's office, leading some to wonder whether a proffer session was, was, was happening. Um, Ben, just quickly kind of hit it like the points of, A, do we think that that is what's happening now? We're sort of a week after the news. Uh, And then we'll talk a little bit about what uh, Mike Flynn might have to say. But could there also be another explanation for why they severed the joint defense agreement? Uh, So there's no, I don't think there's any other uh, reason other than that he's talking to them about cooperation, that he's in a negotiation that's inconsistent with the nature of the joint defense agreement and would therefore make it unethical. Um, his interests have diverged, in other words, substantially from those of, of the other subjects of the, of the investigation. And we should say other people who have lawyers in this investigation don't have joint defense agreements. So that in and of itself right. is so, not a universal thing. So look, the, the, um, that does not mean that he has a deal, right? What it means is that he's talking about having a deal. Um, and whether you get a deal at that point is, I think, in Flynn's case, really contingent on what you have to say. Uh, that is, I, I think most people believe that Mueller has the goods on Flynn. Right. Whether that's right or not, I, I think, uh, it's, it's pretty widely believed. And so, in that situation, the question is, is there any reason why Mueller shouldn't just go ahead and indict the guy? And the answer to that question is heavily contingent on what Flynn has to offer Mueller. And so that is what a proffer session is about. And what you do in a proffer session is you walk in and you, you, you immunize the, 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 the you basically Say what you would say if you were uh, given. Uh, I would be willing to describe X. Correct. I would be willing to provide information on Y. But you're not admitting to it, right? Well, you, you, the material cannot be used against you. Um, so could you just go in and admit to a bunch of crimes in a proffer and then they can't prosecute you? Uh, no, because they can prosecute you for anything they can prove by other means. Got it. They can't um, – It's just your admission that can't be used against you. And so it it is not a um, – but it's, it is an opportunity for you to, to, to show what the benefits of giving you a, co- of a, a cooperation would look like. And, um, and so – the question. So one possibility is uh, that the, he's not able to proffer anything that's sufficiently substantial that 
the that he's of great value to Mueller. In which case, then the question becomes: Okay, uh, we, you know, it's still inconvenient to have to go through a trial with you. So, can we do what kind of plea deal can we get just on the basis that you're willing to plead? You're not going to give substantial assistance, but we'll say everybody will save time if 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 there's a plea bargain. Uh, and so there sometimes still could be a deal on that basis. But if, you know, the, the, the good outcome for Flynn would be if he had something really substantial to offer, and that's when you see uh, somebody become, you know, a cooperating witness uh, in a kind of Papadopoulos sort of way, who, of course, probably has much less exposure than Flynn does to begin with, but who's, you know, probably not going to serve any jail time at all. So I was really struck when the news broke last week of the um, suspension of this defense agreement. The partisan glee um, among opponents of the president, of course, was, okay, Flynn is now going to give up the goods on the president. But the reporting both before and since about Flynn's activities and the breadth of exposure that he has, as Ben was just noting, is to me so striking. I mean, I'm probably going to miss some just trying to list it all out. So, you know, we have the Russia engagement. We have uh, the failure to register as a foreign agent. We have payments that may or may not violate law. We have um, incomplete or misleading, maybe, filing of forms to get his security clearance. Uh, we have a kidnap plot, mm-hmm. and uh, and we have this um, attempt once in office as national security advisor to, through official acts, advance this nuclear power deal in the Middle East on behalf of private interests with whom he had a business arrangement before entering office. There's some other stuff too. I mean, right. you, you, <laughs> right. you're so, leaving out you're leaving out the the undisclosed uh, money from Russia. Right. You're right. Leaving out so like, what I'm saying is like the breadth of this man's exposure is astonishing. Any mild vetting process should have kept this guy out of a position of high public office and public trust. It is disgraceful that he ever was our national security advisor, even if it was for a few days. Now, it it, it begs the question, though, is he really in there talking to, the, to Mueller because he has the goods on President Trump? Or is it that his own exposure is so broad and so egregious that, A, he's just trying to get the best plea deal he can because he knows he's cooked, and or, you know... Uh, it's his exposure that Trump was trying to protect him from that gets Trump in trouble. Not anything Flynn knows himself, but the fact that he was so exposed well, and the president was trying to get Comey to back off. And there's a name we haven't mentioned in this, and maybe Ben, you'll point Michael out Flynn, Michael Jr. Flynn Jr. Yeah. Right. Who's still tweeting, by the way. Amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> Amazing. Yeah. So, so uh, Does this kid have a lawyer? He does. Yes. Is, has that lawyer like been disbarred? No, yet? he has a very good <laughs> and I imagine quite patient lawyer. <laughs> so I, um, I, I think there's a there's a few things you need to say about the scope of Flynn's exposure. First of all, we don't know how big it is. We know that it's he's got a lot of exposure, at least at the level of stuff that's been investigated, right? But all we really know in these cases is that it's a matter of investigation. And that it's uh, 
dribbled out to the press that it's being investigated. That is different from it being an indictable case. Right. And so for to, to say that there were some conversations in which the word kidnapping or or extrajudicial removal was was That's such a great euphemism was thrown by the around. way. Um you know you know what what the Wall Street Journal reported there was that the Mueller people were asking questions about it. Asking questions about it and being able to indict somebody uh, are – these are very, very different standards. So first of all, don't be surprised if Flynn's actual exposure is much narrower than the, the scope and range of activities that have made it out into the press. Okay, and, but still, what a slime ball. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But 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 secondly, I would you know I would say there's a factor that cuts the opposite direction, which is if this is what's gotten out to the press, right? Think about what what more there might be if you have the ability to put people in front of a grand jury uh, and you know get all the documents and uh force people to tell you everything they know which is what these guys actually have and if you look at the disparity between what we knew about Manafort and what they turned out to know about Manafort it was immense and so you know you might have that kind of a situation mm-hmm. here too i also think it's if we're if michael flynn junior is in play that's a powerful incentive for michael flynn to cooperate with the investigation to save his son. So you squeeze Michael Flynn Jr. to get to Michael Flynn. It, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm purely speculating here, I'm not speaking on the basis of any reporting, but what he has to give up on Trump, it could be any number, to your point, Ben, any number of things we don't know about because he was with him for months on the campaign trail. Correct. <clears throat> he was with him all through the conventions, and there are, we know there are some, were some issues around the, the convention platform. Uh, he was with him through the election season. He was with him in the White House. And it seems to me even if some of the known universe of Flynn issues are related to this, it could be a matter of did you ever tell the president you were engaging with the Turks on a possible kidnapping plot? Did the president ever direct you to take actions that would be beneficial to the government of Turkey in your capacity as national security advisor? So <clears throat> I mean, is, is it possible this comes down to – a classic, what did the president know and when did he know it? Or what did Jared or what did Don Jr. know about this? Uh, and that that might be enough to convince Mueller that it's worth making a deal with Flynn, who, as you know, tomorrow correctly points out, like, this is this is a layup for any prosecutor. You don't really need him unless he has something really powerful to give you. Interesting point. Um, I would just say about that, that um, one thing... If you were Bob Mueller, you would absolutely want to know from Flynn is, did you have any contact with the president in the days before uh, the president asked Jim Comey to back off your case? Right. Right. And I think the value of Mike Flynn is a completely different matter if, say, you were aware, I'm just making this up, so I, I don't mean to be suggesting I know anything here, which I don't. But if you have the White House phone records and you see that there's a contact between Flynn and and Trump uh, in the period right before that, right after Flynn leaves the government, right, after, right before this communication, uh, 
And Flynn is in a position to tell you what that communication involved. That's an inherently very valuable thing. And there's a lot of points, as you say, Shane, they're together a lot over a long period of time. And they're in office for 24 days together when a lot of stuff happens. And there's a lot of those points where you would just want to know, as as Bob Mueller uh, what the nature of those interactions were, because they're going to answer a lot of questions about presidential state of mind. And if we just go back in the time machine too a little bit, I think that it's fair to say that to date, our understanding based on now public facts about the conversation that the president had with Jim Comey, where he said, I really hope that you can see to it, to back away from this thing with Mike Flynn I think we kind of broadly understood that to have something to do with his conversations with the Russian ambassador and maybe whether he was supposed to be doing that or maybe it's a fairer thing. It, it's not at all. It was never our assumption at that time that it might have something to do with kidnapping or that right. it might have something to do with something much more uh, um, profound than uh, uh, administrative violations. Uh, if that were found to have been discovered or that the president was directing him to do certain things and the president then knew that the FBI was looking into this whole thicket, that's a much more significant conversation that Trump has with Comey. Exactly. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. All right. So speaking of the investigation, let's continue on this theme. Um, it has come out in, in various forms that the president as well as his lawyers are confident that Bob Mueller is – just in time for Christmas or the new year, planning to wrap this thing up. You know, he's a really a efficient guy, Bob Mueller. He's been working nights and weekends. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. It'll be all done because there's really nothing there. There's really not a lot to see here. Um, you know, for those of us reporting on this story, I think we started hearing this idea coming out of people close to the president that Bob Mueller was, you know, really interested in getting this behind us and wanting to put to rest anything and get rid of the cloud hanging over the Russia investigation quite some time ago. And now the president is, you know, echoing this line, um, which I think struck me and a lot of us uh, as utterly delusional, if not just your basic Washington spin. But, you know, Ben, first of all, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a second. Is there any reason to believe that Bob Mueller would actually be able to wrap up this known-to-be-sprawling investigation with, I guess, what, in the next four to six weeks if we're going by that Well, and, and this is the extension because the original uh, Ty Cobb uh, delusional thinking was by Thanksgiving. Right. 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 And Which was last week, for um, the record. So, Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's all the holiday ish. season. So Easter. Yeah. Arbor Day. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I find this one of the most befuddling aspects of this entire, you know, entire thing. So that Ty Cobb said it or that the president seems to believe it? No, not that he said it once. You can say anything once. It's it's he seems to say it to every reporter who calls him. Uh, He's been quoted near on the record saying um, and, you know, he he is. And it's not just probably not true. It's inconceivable that it could be true. Um, So. If you're a professional investigator in a matter like this, what you absolutely would never say to the investigative subject is, oh, I, I want to kind of wrap this up and clear your guy by the end of the year. That's not what a, a federal prosecutor does. Um, and um, 
and you know, I tweeted the other day that Ty Cobb reminds me a little bit of Saddam Hussein's spokesman in Baghdad. That guy was known as Baghdad Bob, um, who was like he's Baghdad Cobb. He's Baghdad Cobb, who who was like you know talking about how the American forces were being routed on all fronts, right. even as they were like pulling into Baghdad. The tank is rolling up behind him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so I'm, you know, I, in answer to your question, Jane. I don't know. I mean, I, I I can think of a few possible explanations. One is that uh, the only one that doesn't involve professional malpractice on Cobb's part is uh, if he has studied the evidence extremely carefully and he has very high confidence that he has visibility into all the possible surprises. He knows the president doesn't have any exposure. Because he's because he's talked to everybody, he know he knows all the angles, and he knows that he knows what the who you know who's got a problem and who doesn't. So he's you know he knows Manafort's going to have some problems, Flynn might have some problems, but my guy's fine, and so they're going to clean out the dead wood. They'll indict some people, and then it'll kind of peter out because. But if that- or if he were that confident in that outcome, then why would he care how long it takes anyway? He could just, you know, confidently say on the record to reporter after reporter, let Mueller take as long as he's going to take. I'm confident of what he's going to find. There's nothing here that implicates the president and we're going and the White House is going to go on with its business and like pretend it's it doesn't exist. So if you think about normal people's response when they're confident in a criminal investigation, like, say, Hillary Clinton in the email stuff, you know, that was exactly what her people said. Right. right. They, you know, they they said, let the process you know, go. It'll come out the right respect way. Respect the us. process. We're cooperating and it'll take however long it takes. And, you know, that we're, we're confident there's no problem. Um, and um, I do not understand how he is, um, how he purports to be so confident. And it concerns me for a couple of reasons. The first is that he really does appear to have convinced his client of it. And well, so, isn't it? I mean, isn't it reasonable to believe that he is saying this mostly as a message to his client more than to the rest of us who all know that that's a crazy thing to say and it's un, it's very unlikely to be true? Well, I, so, so I don't know. You know, I don't know what he's telling Trump in their attorney client privileged protected meetings. Although, you know, some of his attorney-client work product meetings he does in the presence of the New York Times uh, in public public places. Look, a guy's got to eat. Right. I understand. So, like, you know, I I don't know what he's telling his client in private. But the the Washington Post reported this morning, and I I clipped the three passages and tweeted them together under the delusional thinking – uh, heading, you know, basically that Trump is convinced this is going to wrap up by the end of the year and that people in the White House are concerned that he might blow a gasket when it doesn't or right. if it doesn't. Now, you know, it's the end of November. This investigation is not going to wrap up in, in, in a month. Uh, it's not going to wrap up uh, with a statement of exoneration of the president. And uh, and why it se- why it seems to s- the lawyers to be appropriate to uh, 
allow that expectation on the client's part um, is is completely mystifying to me, and it strikes me as as somewhat dangerous. Um, because one possibility, other than the one that I just articulated, is that the lawyers believe this, in which case they have egregiously miscalculated, I think. Yeah. The second possibility is that they're actually playing the president, um, it, which is really, you know, inappropriate if that's what's happening. So I'm, I'm mystified by it and I, and I don't understand it either either strategically or tactically or ethically. So what happens when the end of the year comes and goes and the Mueller investigation is not closed and the president, you know, and and I, I think part of this is not just what happens when the president realizes that what his lawyer has been saying is not true, but also what happens as the president realizes that this is getting more intense, not less? It's it, it's getting more in the way of what he wants to do, not less. And, you know, how does he respond to that? And I've always thought to that point, more intense for him, it's, it's not even so much that it's perhaps obstructing what he wants to do. But if it starts to implicate either his business arrangements or his members of his family, right, which could bring us back to the the, the Flynn conversation, if there's something that he has on Kushner or Don Jr., there are, there's there's that red line that that we have talked about before of the finances, no? Yeah. So, look. and that's when I think that's when you start to see, you know, I, I look. I think everyone who covers this story is bracing for not the inevitability, but it seems like the high possibility that the president will move to try and block this investigation somehow. And that if, if that were to happen, that to me, I would imagine being the trigger. So look, I, I don't know. I don't do predictions about Donald Trump anymore. We should um, all just not do those. I just The present is hard <laughs> enough to understand. I'm not trying to do the future. But we can to, imagine today, that this but, would trigger that. But today in particular thing. is really hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Just so hard. But that said, look, based on segment one of this show, if you believe that Flynn is Flynn is clearly negotiating with Mueller. So one possibility is that the outcome of that negotiation is a plea deal. That would be because, you know, he has something substantial to tell Mueller, right? The other possibility is that it's an indictment. Uh, either one of those is going to stretch into next year in a significant way. So what what is just the basis for thinking that this is going to wrap up gently with a statement of exoneration of the president? Yeah, I I also wonder like I know that in the in the journalism world everyone's waiting for Trump to try and fire Mueller and you know everyone's written their story about what happens if he tries and you know asked members of Congress what would you do if but I actually you know that is one potential concrete action he might take but as Ben said he's unpredictable I I think we we have to ask what are other less directed responses he might have? Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's just a range of possibilities. And again, this is all wild speculation because we don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, there's just irrational behavior. There's fury at everyone around him, which we've seen come yeah. out at other points for other reasons. But the the guy clearly is willing to unleash his temper when he feels he's been misled or betrayed. Um, and, you know, and 
there was all this speculation right after he won, maybe more a form of wishful thinking than anything else, that he would just throw up his hands and say, I don't really want to do this job. You know, or if he found that his businesses were losing money, that he would cut and run. You know, so I don't take off the table the possibility that he would try somehow to reduce his own liability by just getting out of office. And to your point about, I mean, irrational thinking, I mean, we're seeing there's this, there's this I thought pretty astonishing New York Times report last night that said, among other things, the president continues in private to question whether Barack Obama was really born in the United States. Right. He continues to question whether or not the popular vote was stolen from him. And, and he says it's not his voice on that on the Access, Access Hollywood, Hollywood tape. tape, which was really, I think, the most just stunning piece of that, that, I mean, there's literally a tape of him with his voice getting off a bus. It is clearly him. He admitted that it was him before and privately is saying it's not, which leads to two speculative possibilities here. One is that there's some level of delusion going on or the other that there is some kind of calculated attempt on his part to completely alter and distort reality to an absurd degree to actually literally go against what you said about the tape that has you and your voice on it that could then play itself out, I think, in a fairly concerted effort to just say oh, everything. Oh, you're back to your 25th Amendment thing again. No, 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 no. I know where you're well, going I mean, okay. This. I mean, that, look, <laughs> we could go down that road too if you want. But I was I was going to get off at the exit at 24. Um, <laughs> no, but to say that I think you could see a concerted effort to, in the face of facts that are presented or things that Mike Flynn says or an investigation that starts to close in around him, the president simply saying, it's all not, none of it's true. It's just all lies. Yeah. And I absolutely, despite, you know, black and white evidence staring you in the face, and I could see a sizable portion of the voting public agreeing with him. And I think there's an element of laying groundwork here to so undermine people's faith in institutions and the things that they can literally see with their own eyes that could be put into service for some kind of absurd defense, but nonetheless a defense in the face of what could be hard to refute evidence that there uh, that, that, that could be uh, evidence of impeachable offenses or crimes or something that is just really politically catastrophic for him. It's like Orwellian, but without any real purpose to the exercise yeah. of power. I mean, I, it's, I, I, mean I, I find myself at so many points in this story thinking, well, that just sounds crazy. But here we are where there's reporting that the president literally questions whether that's his voice on a tape. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, on one level, that's completely crazy, but it's not more crazy than the president questioning the authenticity of his predecessor's birth certificate, um, which he also appears to be doing again. Um, and, you know, th- this is a person who is a, uh, uh, pardon me, crazed conspiracy theorist. And, um, and, uh, and so it shouldn't be too surprising when he uh, behaves like a crazed conspiracy theorist. Well, I'll just uh, quote to you what Congresswoman Lois Frankel said at the hearing uh, that I at which I testified this morning um, when her question time came around, she uh, related some thoughts in response to the president's tweeting of these uh, these fake snuff videos, these anti-Muslim videos this morning. And she said, I think he's Looney Tunes. Um, and, <laughs> you know, term. that's the technical yeah. term from an elected official in the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah. All right. Um, 
Let's go overseas now, shall we? Is there delusional thinking overseas too? (laughs) (laughs) So much delusional thinking. (laughs) So much. Um, That's that's a great segue for my question for tomorrow, which is, okay, so tomorrow in Iraq and in Syria, more to the point, uh, the war against ISIS is seems to be paying off. ISIS may be at the point where it is at least as a embodied force with some territorial integrity. It's on the run, man. It's on the run. Uh, Appears we might actually defeat it, and I'll kind of air quote that. So um, then mission accomplished and all the troops come home, right? Well, so it's interesting. I think it's it's been clear from certainly from the campaign, um, but throughout the administration that President Trump does not have a huge appetite for uh, foreign entanglements or for long term deployments of American forces overseas. And yet he inherited this war against ISIS. He promised to scale it up. He did scale it up. Uh, and uh, the U.S. and its coalition partners have succeeded in ousting ISIS from just about all the territory that it held in Iraq and Syria. Um, the the Syria case is particularly interesting. In Iraq, of course, the United States is there with the agreement and at the request of the Iraqi government. But in Syria, we've been operating from the get-go against the desires of the Syrian government um, and on the basis of the need, you know, our imperative to fight ISIS under uh, as we've discussed on the show numerous times, the old AUMFs um, about al-Qaeda and associated forces. And so it begs the question now, you know, both politically, if the fight against ISIS is over, isn't it time to bring our people home? And that's what the Trump administration has been signaling for months, basically saying, as soon as we get to Raqqa, as soon as ISIS is ousted, um, we're going to do basic stabilization, and then we're out of here. Uh, Brett McGurk, who's the U.S. special envoy to the anti-ISIS coalition, um, made clear to the coalition partners this summer that the U.S. was not going to be doing reconstruction. It wasn't going to worry about governance. It was just going to basically turn the electricity on and clear some rubble and then leave. Um, now, you know, However, (laughs) uh, the tune is starting to change. And um, at the same time that we're losing our legal justification for being in Syria, at the same time that the Pentagon is finally admitting that we may have as many as 2,000 troops on the ground in Syria, uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis is saying, well, you know, we're going to leave our troops there until the Geneva process, the political process to settle the Syrian civil war is, I think he said, cracked. Cracks, yeah. Until the process has cracked, which I guess means until there's some kind of peace settlement underway. And that all of a sudden is a shift in the objective of having these U.S. forces there to begin with. Both Obama and Trump were totally focused on the war against ISIS. They did not want American forces playing a role in setting outcomes of the Syrian civil war. Uh, And now Mattis is saying, our troops are going to be leveraged, basically, to try and improve the position at the negotiating table. So that's, you know, it's it's risky. It's open-ended. Um, the Our forces on the ground could be in a very vulnerable position, especially if our former local partners feel like we're not protecting their interests well enough. Uh, and so I think it's it's a real can of worms. So we have about, is it like 536 or something like that, ground troops that are... In Syria right now, it's a small. It's a small. Well, number. so officially, the limit on U.S. troops in Syria is 503. But the Pentagon gets to play with this by p- 
pulling people in and out who are not deployed officially to Syria. They're there for particular missions and then they leave or they're there as advisors. They're not there in combat. And so if you add it all up, um, reportedly, it's somewhere between 1,500, maybe over 2,000. Okay. So r- roughly, let's say, let's give or take around 2,000. I mean, to your point of if we are going to stay on the ground to exert leverage on either the peace process or possibly even Assad leaving, is that enough troops to exert that leverage? And do you now then fall into the trap of, well, maybe we need to add a couple more thousand to to increase the leverage to make that more serious or to provide that security for the places that need it? I mean, if we're talking about the slippery slope, is that where it comes in? And even though we're not actively engaged in combat, suddenly this sort of peacekeeping mission escalates into something that looks a lot more significant in terms of its troop presence. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is a real danger. But I also, I question how serious the administration is about this shift in in objectives. Um, because at the same time that there seems to be a desire, at least on Secretary Mattis's part, to use our presence in the region as leverage on the political outcomes, we have President Trump on the phone with Erdogan saying, well, we're going to cut off our support for our, our Kurdish allies in Syria. And we have the president on the phone with Putin basically acquiescing to uh, the Putin-led peace process. You know, So it seems to me that this is another case where the president is in one place and the State Department and, and Defense Department are trying to do something else. They're trying to claw back an American role in deciding outcomes in Syria, our our friends in the region really want us to play more of a role in deciding outcomes in Syria. But it's not clear to me that the president's really on board with that. But is this sort of, sort of is the dynamic that we've just now seen that is, I mean, I don't know if it's the Trump doctrine, but I mean, the, the president says one set of things and the people who actually run the government go and do another. That, that is the Trump doctrine. That is it. Yeah. No, the Trump doctrine is the president says what he says and the government does what it does. And there doesn't – I've never seen, you know, for a guy who claims to be all strong and everything, I've never seen an executive less unitary and neither has anyone else. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's it's very hard to justify from a democratic perspective, you know, that, that the – that, you know, the president's words are absolutely meaningless. But that's the reality. Well, so this is a very interesting manifestation of that overall trend, though, Ben, because what you have here is the Defense Department wanting to keep troops in theater where the White House had at least signaled, they haven't said anything explicitly, that they would like fewer troops in theater or they'd like to get out of theater. Um, so the Defense Department is is extending um, and and doing something risky not protecting against risky behavior that's been demanded from above. I I also wonder about the legal dimension. I mean, how does the Pentagon square this continued presence? Well, I I, I mean, I think, you know, the the legal theories of these involvements are are not entirely public to be honest. And um and uh, you know, I think the you know the 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 broad point is that the administration is not one actor here and um and i think the you know we we have been through a lot of administrations in fact all of them within our adult lifetimes 
uh, in which the administration, the, the presidency meant an administration, and that's not what it means here. Is it too absurd to just believe on a basic level that in a day-to-day basis the president does not know what other members of his cabinet have said or done? I mean, I, traditionally yeah. the president informs himself by aides who come and explain things to him or he's reading these things in the press, but I mean— is it possible he just he's, has no idea what Jim Mattis has said about troops in Syria and Geneva? I suppose it's possible, although I would think that with Chief of Staff John Kelly, Kelly would be doing, you know, at least the basics in terms of keeping the president informed. Right. Because even if you don't want to tell him everything, you sure as heck don't want him to be blindsided. Okay. Right. So, there, you know, there's some basic communication that's got to be going on there. But the question is, how is it put to him? We were just talking about Ty Cobb. Is he, you know, is he misleading the president? Is he just trying to keep the president calm? We don't know if advisors in the White House are spinning. Um, they're, they're saying, well, Mattis just said this to put pressure on the Russians. You know, who knows well, we how do this know. is being explained Well, it's interesting. President. We do know, I mean, related, I mean, in the, in the New York Times reporting that came out yesterday we referred to earlier, <clears throat> there are instances where aides in meetings with lawmakers try to get the lawmakers to say things or ask questions of the president that will steer him back onto more appropriate topics of discussion when he starts veering off into things about Access Hollywood and the vote count. So it's interesting. So we're seeing maybe a little bit of a glimpse of how aides have figured out how to sort of use other people or try to create environments in which you prompt him with a certain question, you get him talking about something to kind of get through the meeting. And I wonder if that's kind of what getting through the day looks like, too. Yeah, I, I think where the the pointy end of the spear on this problem, though, is when the president talks directly to foreign leaders about mm-hmm. these policy issues. He may have aides in the room with him. They may have prepped him. They may even have talked through with him. You know, what's the key goal for this phone call? And that is and, traditional. Right. And the, and they may even think that they've got him on board. But once he gets on the phone, God only knows yeah. how he's going to respond to to what comes from a Putin or an Erdogan or, you know, and it's and so I think that that's the thing that no matter how much they may try, they cannot control and they just have to live with the consequences of. So we don't know exactly uh, what assurances President Trump gave President Putin about our respect for his Sochi peace process. Um, we know that American diplomats have been working to try and, you know, get the other permanent five members of the UN Security Council uh, lined up with our, you know, preference for Assad to leave power. We know that there's been a lot of behind the scenes diplomacy with Arab states um, on these on these Syria post-conflict questions. But at the end of the day, if Trump and Putin decide something, everybody else is going to have to fall into line. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. I was delighted by uh, something that I saw on YouTube this week. Um, Boston Dynamics, you know, the people who are building our future robot overlords. Oh, right. Um, <clears throat> they've been designing this robot, I, I believe it goes by the name Atlas, which has been doing things like, you know, learning how to walk up and down stairs. Do and there's flips. Well, we're going to get to that. Oh. Well, now he can. Yeah. So, like, the previous videos have been of these robots looking like a drunk in a subway, just kind of, like, you know, stumbling down, not being able to get up. This is the newest of Atlas jumping up and down on boxes. Hey, we do that at the gym, jumping up and around, down Spinning around, and then, get this, this robot, here he comes for the big one, hops up 
on this three foot platform, turns around, backflip. Wow, like a ten year old gymnast, and this, even puts his arms up in the air. Even in the air. so, this robot is um, is competing at the summer games. Uh, and <laughs> and my favorite tweet of this was Alex Medina at Fox, who simply tweeted, "We dead." Yeah, no, no. This it's, video scared the shit out of it's me. It's bad. It's bad. I mean, there's just like Atlas. Because well, eventually that robot's going to shrug and like, we're all screwed. Atlas was falling down drunk like a month ago. And now he's like, I don't know, Mary well, Lou Look, I think it's really great that he can jump up and down onto boxes and do backflips. But like, I don't do that and I'm still doing okay in the world. So Atlas is going to take over this podcast. I think, and we'd like to invite Atlas on this podcast. <laughs> we would. Um, yeah, no, no, he's welcome anytime. Boston Dynamics has not sponsored us, but if the, if Atlas wants to come on, look, neither is Me Undies, and we talk about them all the time. <laughs> Me Undies cannot like rip my head off my body and then <laughs> put it on its own head and do back. By the way, Rational Security this week not sponsored by Boston Dynamics. Not sponsored by Boston yeah. Dynamics. Uh, hint, hint. <laughs> Atlas, <laughs> we can do backflips too. Uh, tomorrow, what's your object? Uh, my object is a sobering one, but I think um, one that's worth your time, which is uh, a letter that was released this week and reported on by Time Magazine, um, signed by 223 women who are either current or former uh, national security officials across the U.S. government. I am one of the 223. Um, writing an open letter about sexual assault and sexual harassment in national security, um, in the Pentagon, the, in the National Security Council staff, the intelligence community, the State Department, and also in um, the national security world outside government. And um, I I think we were driven to write this letter first because there so much of the public conversation around sexual harassment has focused on media personalities and entertainment uh, actors and and things like that. But I it, this is something that happens everywhere. It happens um, on farms. It happens in schools, and it happens in the national security community too. And it's also you know. The national security environment is one that is already challenging for women in a lot of ways. And uh, the burden of living with day-to-day um, gender inequity and sexual harassment and sexual assault and the way that they create a hostile workplace actually drives women out of the field. And so, you know, one of the points that the letter makes is that the the pipeline is not the central problem in achieving gender equity in national security. There, If you look at, for example, the graduate schools of international affairs, in most of them, women are either half or more than half of the student body. And women are getting hired into the national security world, but they're leaving. Mm. <laughs> um, women make up 15 percent of the active duty military, which is a historic high. But the women who are already in senior ranks are getting promoted much, much less frequently than their peers. Um, female Foreign Service uh, enter the State Department at equal rates to their male colleagues. But as you go up each level of promotion, there are fewer and fewer women. So they are literally dropping out. Uh, and the problem of sexual assault and sexual har harassment is one big reason. I think all 223 of us and many, many more uh, could tell stories. And so this was a week when we decided we wanted to call attention to that problem and also talk to our colleagues and friends and and bosses um, to say thank you to the ones who have helped and 
to help give some guidance to those who can do more to combat this problem. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast this week. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show archive. Just Google Rational Security. It's probably somewhere still on the website. Because we're famous. We'll come up at the top of the <laughs> it's, results. It's on a website we're not using anymore. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. We are not on Instagram. We should maybe do Instagram. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot should. of social media. Yeah, manage. why? Bother? <clears throat> Let's get Atlas to do Instagram for us. <laughs> Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a nice review and a comment. It helps other people find the podcast as well. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Our music this week was performed by Baghdad Cobb and the Daydream Believers. Excellent. Oh, nice. Very good. Very nice. That could be a real band. Yeah. And if it were, Sophia Yan would totes do keys for it, <laughs> as she does our theme music every week. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Woodis and Ben Woodis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.